Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Narratives, dispatches from Minnesota that highlight the stories of Asian America. My name is Yoko Vu, and I'm the storyteller intern for Asian American Organizing Project. And I'm Sienna Iwasaki Melbauer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the content creator intern for Asian American Organizing Project. I'm excited to be here to co-host a special pair of New Narratives episodes about a topic that has always been intensely relevant to our Minnesotan Asian communities, but perhaps even more so recently reproductive justice. The term reproductive justice was first coined in 1994 by a group of Black women in Chicago named Women of African Descent for Reproductive Justice. According to Sister Song, rooted in the internationally accepted human rights framework created by the United Nations, reproductive justice combines reproductive rights and social justice. The progenitors of RJ launched the movement by publishing a historic full-page statement with 800-plus signatures in the Washington Post and Roll Call. On today's episode, we're talking with R. Justices Shayla Walker and Megumi Ryerson. R. Justice is a Minnesota-based abortion fund that provides financial and logistical support for folks seeking an abortion. The organization has also been a plaintiff in a number of significant abortion rights cases in Minnesota. This includes 1995's Doe v. Gomez, which established a precedent of constitutional protection of abortion care in the state of Minnesota. Our justice was also a plaintiff in a recent case, which resulted in a Minnesota district court ruling several Minnesota abortion restriction laws as unconstitutional, paving the way for better abortion care access in our state. In our conversation, Shayla and Megumi share about the history and present state of abortion access in Minnesota, the importance of providing financial resources to make abortion care truly equitable, and what true reproductive justice would look like to them. Let's dive in. My name is Shayla, and all pronouns are fine with me. And I am the executive director of Our Justice. I'm Black and Dominican. I am a Gemini sun, Cancer moon, and or excuse me, Cancer rising in Taurus moon. My name is Megumi Ryerson. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the communications director at Our Justice. I'm mixed Japanese and white. I got into this work I've been realizing uh, like seven or eight years ago now, and I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I'm a Virgo sun and a Virgo rising and a Taurus moon. Thank you. Well, since we're sharing, I only remember that my son is in Scorpio, even though (laughs) I've looked up multiple times about my racing and my moon. Let me see if I can remember mine. I know that I'm a a sun. My son is in Taurus. I believe my moon is in Aquarius, um, and I... I think I am a Scorpio rising, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, so to kind of jump us off in the conversation, Megumi, you touched on this a little bit. I just kind of wanted to start if each of you would share how you got involved in reproductive justice work um, and then specifically how you ended up in your role at Our Justice. I got into this work, yeah, like I said, seven or eight years ago. I started off as a phone, not a phone canvasser, a, a door canvasser for Naval Pro-Choice Washington in Seattle. I sort of got an understanding for a lot of interconnected issues of like how abortion access is a matter of, you know, legal restrictions and legislation, but also like a material thing that people struggle to pay for. And that there's a, there can often be a disconnect between like what people understand is like 
the legal recognition of abortion access and then like what it's actually like to to access it because I was doing a lot of canvassing around Catholic hospital mergers and the way that that sort of hospitals work and interact to um, either restrict or increase abortion access. And the place that I got introduced to the concept of reproductive justice as a whole was when I was a sex educator. We did sex education. My supervisor and I did sex education through our local Planned Parenthood for a variety of community events, including groups with parents, groups with parents and kids, um, talking to having or trying to foster healthy conversations about sex. But the thing that we did regularly was that we would go into the local juvenile detention center um, to do sex education lessons. And that was sort of the first time that the sort of confluence of all the life extinguishing systems that we work in, that reproductive justice works to fight against became really clear to me that there was a bit of a dissonance between trying to teach kids about having healthy relationships to their bodies and to themselves when they were in jail um, and having so much of their autonomy and rights taken away from them um, when they're literally kids. Yeah, so that's how I kind of came to like that specific grounding of reproductive justice and hopped around a lot of different jobs. Um, I used to work in campaigns and for um, elected officials and sort of came back to my home in the repro and abortion movement because I don't know, I just sort of felt called to, which is a little corny, but that's kind of the thing. Yeah. So this is Sheila and I started in repro about 10 years ago. So I was like fresh out of college and I was looking for a job that, you know, like a big girl job. And I, saw this opening for a a woman's health advisor. I think that's what it was called at the time. And it was for an independent abortion clinic in Minneapolis. I did an interview. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was at my job interviewing on my lunch break for this new job. And I I got the job. I was so excited to start. And when I got there, I was so overwhelmed by the amount of appointments that I saw. So this is like before they had transitioned their record keeping system over to the the computer. It was all on paper. And I just remember on my first day looking up at stacks and stacks of paper, like they were like literally towering me of people who were like getting abortion And I was really intimidated because I remembered like in high school, we would have conversations about abortion here and there. And somebody said to me, oh, abortion is not that common. A lot of people don't have it. It's not that big of an issue. It's just a wedge issue that people talk about. For some reason, I don't know why I believe this random man in in high school. I believed him and I was like, yeah, that's, that's right. But when I got to my job, I saw all these, all these forms, all these request forms for appointments. And I'm like, that man was very misinformed. <laughs> so I was intimidated. I almost quit. And my mom was like, Shayla, just give it a chance. And from there, I stayed a week and I was introduced to some of the closest people that I hold dear to me now. And they taught me about reproductive justice. They showed me the sister song video. We started organizations and clubs together um, for women of color to start talking about reproductive justice issues in Minnesota through storytelling and through art. And 
Yeah, I found my political home for a long time. I was organizing around race issues since I was in high school. And when I found reproductive justice, that was the first time where I was able to organize around multiple facets of my identity. So it felt really good. I often say like our reproductive justice should be everybody's political home because it is the home of intersectionality. After working at the clinic for about seven, eight years, then I transitioned uh, to work at Our Justice and I became the ED earlier this year. And it feels like (laughs) I've been working here for such a long time, but I've had the best time leading in the space and leading with Megumi, who's like freaking brilliant and Leah, also brilliant mine. And it feels really good to to be able to lead alongside these two people and create a powerful movement for reproductive justice in Minnesota and um, specifically in the Twin Cities, something that I feel a lot of people have been craving for a long time and it is also meeting the moment. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I love learning about books, um, where they come from and their journeys and how intersectional often things are in the different um, justices and different fights that like we are going through. And Sheila, as you're talking about our justice, um, can either of you talk about what the role of our justice is in the fight of for reproductive rights in Minnesota? And um, in addition to that, what is our justice currently working on? I'm going to let Megumi take that because I feel like Megumi has been leading a lot of the significant work that we're doing now. Like, I feel like I could talk to like the work that we've been doing in the past, but I want to look forward. And so I'm going to let Megumi take that. I will say Shayla though is the expert on the fund. So um, the role of our justice in the fight for reproductive rights and justice in Minnesota, for those who don't know, I don't know in your audience, we're um, an abortion fund and a reproductive justice organization. So our primary programming is to directly fund people's abortions and get them as many of the resources as as we have the capacity to provide um, to make it as easy as possible, get abortion care. We are a small organization and the uh, number of barriers to abortion are much bigger (laughs) than us, but we see our role as kind of closing the gap between the legal right to abortion and the reality of accessing it. So um, abortion is legal in Minnesota. It has remained legal since Roe v. Wade was struck down. However, since long before Roe v. Wade was struck down, there were all kinds of barriers to accessing abortion care. And namely, the ones that we were addressing were cost and travel. And um, to a degree, societal abortion stigma that sort of underpins all of the material barriers. So we are continuing uh, since the decision to provide a pledge of financial support to anyone who is getting an abortion within our service area at any of the clinics in Minnesota, um, any Minnesota resident traveling outside to a different legal state, um, and also one independent clinic in Iowa. What we're working on right now is... I would say pushing us as a state and as a movement in Minnesota beyond just legal recognition and sort of verbal acknowledgement of abortion care, because as we've seen, it is simply not enough to say that a community, a person, elected official is pro-abortion or pro-choice because 
really what makes the difference between someone actually being able to access it is like having the resources to do so. Um, and that's why we operate so firmly from a reproductive justice framework because the material conditions that create a community where abortion is safe, legal, and ideally free, those are the same conditions that are gonna create a safe community across all movements. So we don't have full reproductive justice. We don't live in a safe and thriving community if there's not clean water, if there's not safe housing, people don't have fair and equitable wages, if people are still afraid of police violence, like all of these factors come together to create a world where everyone gets to access the care they need and be able to do whatever they want with their bodies. Um, so what we're working on right now is concretely we are seeking municipal funding at the at the city level from the city of Minneapolis. We're hoping to secure funds in the city budget to directly fund abortion care, um, which is something that lots of cities across the country have done um, and sort of represents like a new model and way of engaging in abortion access because I think for a long time there's been a real hesitation to put resources behind abortion care. Politicians and elected officials are much more comfortable saying that they support abortion in theory, but not actually engaging with the issue itself. And that's for a number of reasons, but one of them is chiefly because the people who struggle to access abortion care are Black people, Indigenous people, people of color, poor people, queer and trans people, all types of communities that like our power structures and governments are usually used to ignoring and marginalizing, but not not today. <laughs> we're working on that. And we're also hoping to, in the next couple of months, relaunch our abortion support group or post-abortion support group for uh, folks to have a sort of peer-led community space around accessing abortion, what it was like to access abortion and all of this, the complicated feelings that come up around that. Because for so many people, they experience every kind of emotion you could possibly experience. But often there's only room to experience super positive or super negative. And that's not the case. That's kind of what we're working on in the future. And I don't know if Shayla wants to talk a little bit more about what we're seeing in the fund and our services. Yeah, with the fund, we are seeing that, you know, people are just needing money for their abortion and the fund can only support as much as we have. So we're needing more people to donate. I'm going to put a plug out there, donate to ourjustice.net. Yeah, so we're seeing people needing larger amounts, and that has been a trend since COVID. Before COVID, people would need like $100, or they need $200, and they could figure out the rest. They could work a couple extra hours at work, or they could reach out to a friend or a family member to borrow some money. But that is not the case anymore for a lot of folks. They maybe don't have work or maybe their support system and their communities that they used to lean on before already tapped out. So they're needing a lot larger portions of funding than what we traditionally were passing out in the past. And so our goal hopefully is to make sure that we are able to fundraise not only to meet like so many people who are coming to Minnesota and people who are in Minnesota who already have insurance and their insurance doesn't pay for their abortion, but also just to, you know, fund them in a way that is really meaningful. So instead of the $150 or $200 pledges to bring it up to $400 and $500 pledges because a first trimester abortion in clinic is around I want to say between seven to 800. Like when I started back in 2013, it was like 
closer to 550, but now I'm seeing trends going up 700, $800. And that's just for first trimester. Another thing that we're working on is doing some advocacy in the state around reimbursement rates. So we have uh, Medicaid uh, in Minnesota, thanks to our justice and Dovi Gomez. And Dovi Gomez is a case that we had with, that we were plaintiffs in back in 1995, and we won. And that established in the in the state constitution, the Minnesota constitution, that the state can't uphold one pregnancy outcome over the other meaning the same way that Medicaid has to pay for a birth is the same way that Medicaid has to pay for an abortion or miscarriage. So we had the foresight to be part of that litigation back in 1995 so that we could have that in the state of Minnesota. However, though we have Medicaid that pays for abortions, we don't have a lot of providers taking Medicaid because Medicaid reimbursements are so low. So even if a provider did an abortion and the abortion, it was a cash price of $2,000 or $800 or $3,000, Medicaid pays them the same amount. And I believe it's less than $400. So clinics are not able to stay afloat with that. So they're of course not gonna see Medicaid patients, but who are Medicaid patients? Folks who are, again, like Megumi said, been ignored by the state, Black folks, Indigenous folks, disabled folks, queer folks, those folks are going to have less access to care just because of the state not trying to reimburse clinics in a way that is meaningful. Sort of provide some context to this conversation and the current situation that we're in in terms of the fight for reproductive justice. Could one or both of you talk about some of the big moments in the history of abortion and reproductive justice in Minnesota, including but not limited to the recent fall of Roe and how that affects the landscape? Shayla already touched on this really well with mentioning Dobie Gomez, so maybe we can start from there. I mean, abortions have been happening in Minnesota and the abortion movement has been happening in Minnesota long before Dovi Gomez, but I think relevant to where we're at right now is um, in 1995, Our Justice was the plaintiff in a lawsuit called Dovi Gomez, which sued the state of Minnesota for, um, I believe, Shayla not covering abortion care in its state-run Medicaid. And this lawsuit ended up establishing the strong constitutional protections that we have for abortion care in Minnesota now. And that's what Shayla was talking about. The specific decision says that any state-administered program, whether that's Medicaid or something like a state grant, cannot privilege one birth outcome over the other. And that has been interpreted through a good amount of case law to mean that Minnesota has stronger constitutional protections for abortion than the federal constitution, which is why when Roe fell, abortion has remained legal in Minnesota. Recently, our justice filed another lawsuit under the Minnesota state constitution to repeal a number of state-level abortion restrictions that we believe and a judge also believed uh, violated the the decision of Doe v. Gomez. So essentially, we had already done the work in 1995 to ensure that restrictions on abortion, like the ones that were just struck down, uh, weren't in place. And yet, they continued to be passed. And the dozen or so restrictions that were repealed uh, represented a portion of the hundreds of restrictions that were introduced in state in the state legislature 
um, since Joe v. Gomez. So I think the existence of those state restrictions and what Shayla is talking about with these Medicaid reimbursements, it represents a large system of incentives that actively disincentivize both providers from providing abortion care and patients from accessing it. So it's sort of meaningless if there's a legal recognition of abortion care when there's all of these systems and incentives that make it really difficult to both provide and access. But that does lead us to the fact that we did get a recent, a really big win recently in our lawsuit. A state court recently struck down a number of the restrictions that we were challenging, including a 24-hour waiting period for all patients that included a state-mandated script be read to patients that included both medically irrelevant and inaccurate information. It was a script written by anti-abortion lawmakers to just sort of create another delay in getting abortion care. The two-parent notification for minors was struck down. That was a really big win as well because minors who wanted to access abortion care would have to notify both of their parents regardless of their relationship, regardless of the safety of, uh, of doing that. Um, and if they couldn't do that, they would have to go in front of a judge and have a judge decide whether or not they were mature or responsible or worthy enough to get an abortion. The ban on advanced practice clinicians providing abortion care was struck down, which means that advanced nurse practitioners can provide abortion care, which is really important because there's a, ser- there's a serious shortage of abortion providers, especially right now. There's not enough abortion providers to meet the need, and that's just been a fact for quite a while. And then felony penalties for abortion providers were also struck down, which was Uh, a unique targeting of abortion providers, obviously, to make it not only not financially feasible to do their job, but also like scary and like criminally scary to do their job. That's kind of, those are some really important parts of the history that I think have gotten us here. And it's also like, we take every victory in the courts as like a, a win and also like another step forward because we know that the courts and the law are not going to ultimately have the final say on meaningful access for everyone. I just want to add to that too, what Megumi had said about these laws that were been introduced after we had already done the work. It wasn't just specifically done in Minnesota. This was a national strategy that has been happening across um, states where all these, what they call trap laws have been introduced. And there have been hundreds of them introduced for a number of years. And what they essentially do is, like Megumi said, prevent people from getting access to abortion care. If the laws are, the trap laws are passed and the providers are not able to meet the new standards that are irrelevant to the care that they're providing, then they have to close down. And it's not like the clinics close down and then fund a small volunteer led fund or a small like three person fund takes the state to court and then wins. Like this is like a very unique thing that happened in Minnesota, like across the nation, this hasn't been happening where funds can go to court and then win big like we have and then clinics start opening back up again because once a clinic closes it's hard for a clinic to reopen and like that's what we've seen in texas before 2013 there was a plethora of clinics in texas by the time that i left my job at um the independent abortion clinic that i was working at i think there was about maybe 
maybe 10 clinics in Texas left, if that. So that just goes to say, even if the laws are overturned, even if like we get big wins, there is still a, a hit to access that is really hard to recover from. And that will take, I don't know, it could take years to recover from. I don't know when Mississippi is going to get another clinic. I don't know when Missouri is going to be able to open up another clinic should things change in their state. So it's very important to do the work on the front end and be on the offense. Right, yeah, definitely all great points. And as Magumi has already brought up about the abortion restrictions being ruled unconstitutional, I want to know where do we go from here? What are the next steps for us in Minnesota? Fund abortion. Like if, if, if it's so important for people to say that this is a haven state, that this is a place where everyone can be safe and get an abortion, if it's so important for elected officials to say that we're not going to prosecute people for getting an abortion here and that we support abortion in X, Y, and Z ways, like the most meaningful way to impact abortion access is to pay for abortion care to make it easy to access abortion care. Because just because it's legal, it does not mean it's easy or accessible or just at all. Making abortion legal doesn't change the fact that most people in this country cannot afford a $500 emergency expense. And it's actually more and more, it's like not gonna be a $500 emergency expense. It's gonna be closer to a thousand because you need a plane ticket, you need uh, childcare, you need a place to stay. You need to eat out for all the nights that you're gone. You're going to lose your wages. There's so many ways that accessing abortion, the reality of accessing abortion reveals the inequities in our, like our system of classism, racism, sexism, all of these things all come together um, when we think about accessing abortion care. So if it's important for people to live in a place where abortion is legal and not criminalized, it's important for them to put resources behind it. Yeah, like when we said fund abortion, the folks in power, what they need to do is make sure that these insurance companies include abortion care as part of their plans. Like the majority of the people that we serve have insurance. They have insurance and they still cannot afford their abortions. And insurance companies are not covering their abortion. Why do we have in Minnesota where you can get insurance through what is it? What's that plant called? Is it the the exchange? The exchange where oh, people the exchanges. Yes. Yeah, the exchange. So people can get their plan through the exchange, but none of the plans on the exchange has abortion coverage. That should not be a thing. So yeah, fund abortions, pay for people's abortions. Um, make sure you're voting for politicians who like like are funding or making sure that people are getting childcare um, funded making sure that they have transportation um, to get to and from their appointments, um, making sure that folks are able to take time off of work and still get paid because how are you going to go to work and you're, you need health care. You're going to get penalized for accessing health care. That's, it just doesn't make sense. And so, yeah, fund abortions. As you sort of noted in the past answer, there's this context right now where Minnesota is becoming framed as a haven state, right? So in the Midwest, it's one of the few states where the, you know, right to access abortion 
is very well protected and there will be states surrounding us where folks may need to come to Minnesota to access abortion. Um, so my question is, what is that gonna look like? How is that gonna affect the abortion access system that we have in place in Minnesota to be accepting all of these, these patients that need care? And also what is sort of the ratio of providers and resources that we have for abortion in Minnesota um, versus the need that is going to, to exist? I would say the ratio is changing right now. We're in flux. Like Megumi said, there was never enough abortion providers to begin with. But since we had this win and advanced practitioners can now offer abortion care, I think going forward, we are going to see a growth in the practitioners that we have in Minnesota. Also, there are only about five providers that can train all these practitioners. So the growth is not going to happen immediately. It's going to be something that is going to take time. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we've already been accepting people from other states. We've been serving people from Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota, Michigan even. So I think that, again, that's going to be a slow trickle in because only the people who can find childcare, who can take off time from work, who can get a ride, find transportation, those are the folks who are going to be able to travel. And how many people can just like, you know, find out they're pregnant, know like, oh my gosh, I'm 12 weeks or eight weeks or 15 weeks and know like, okay, I have this much time because abortion is a time sensitive matter to get here, get to from one state to another. I have this much time to fundraise this much money for my abortion. Like that's not going to be everybody. A lot of people are not going to be able to travel. And I think that's one thing that we don't talk about enough. Like, yes, we're going to have a lot of people coming to Minnesota uh, for care, but there's also the fact that a lot of people are not going to be able to travel and we're going to still have to support them in some ways. I think that Shayla hit on the important points. I mean, already we have heard from every provider in the state that they're overwhelmed, that they've seen a massive increase in people coming in. I think the big trends are a huge increase in patients coming in, a huge increase in patients coming from out of state, and people who live in the communities where these brick and mortar clinics are being unable to get appointments because clinics are booked up, um, which means that appointments will then get delayed. Uh, people will have their appointments delayed, which makes their appointments more expensive, or they just won't seek abortion care at all. And that's all by design, right? So if there is not, I mean, there is a national strategy to ultimately outlaw abortion at the federal level, but because they have been, because the anti-abortion movement has been unable to do that effectively because of all these different state level restrictions and laws, they are working very uh, hard to make it as inaccessible as possible, to put as many barriers as possible. So, you know, putting in a bunch of state level restrictions that like under-resourced funds have to like spend money and time on litigation to repeal or abort making abortion financially not feasible for like clinics to provide or and just putting so many steps in the way that like people are just going to hopefully in their eyes hopefully say it's not worth it to me like abortion isn't a real choice for me um because it's too expensive it's too far it's all of these things um because i think what we don't 
quite focus on enough is that like the correct number of abortion providers is one in every single community in every single state so that every single person can get it like within 24 hours of when they need it because it's actually so violent to be forced to be pregnant a day longer than you want to be like forced pregnancy and forced birth is deeply violent and that's something that gets taken for granted a lot and you know the idea that uh abortion is legal in some states so you can just go and travel somewhere as if that's not like a huge disruption in your life. There's just so many ways that like the people who are accessing abortion are undervalued and their time is taken for granted and their resources are taken for granted. And also there's just complete often lack of understanding of like how hard it actually is and how, yeah, you can just travel to another state to get your abortion, but like, would you want to travel? Like, get on a like three to six hour plane ride to have to like, I don't know, like get your root canal or something. Cause it was so restricted in your state, but because it's abortion, it's highly stigmatized and people who get abortions are highly stigmatized. People think that that's like an okay amount of work to do. Yeah. And as we're talking about abortion restrictions and we've already mentioned a bit about this with Medicaid, could you talk about the specific and unique impacts of abortion restrictions on people of color? The people who have who have always struggled to have full autonomy and to experience full bodily autonomy and full like safety and accessibility in their reproductive choices. I mean, since since the founding of this country has always been black and indigenous people. And it's also been like every person of color, every person who is queer, trans, disabled, doesn't speak English, like if you do not meet a very specific image of a rich white and able-bodied person in America, then there are all sorts of ways that consciously and unconsciously you're assumed to be less deserving of care, of basic health care. And that shows up in, in how Medicaid coverage in Minnesota is intended for poor people and has pretty abysmal coverage. <laughs> often, especially for abortion care, um, that shows up in the fact that like lots of queer and trans people don't want to go to a brick and mortar clinic to get an abortion because they're going to be misgendered or they're going to have really like gross invasive questions asked about their sex life and their, their choices, their gender, their anatomy. That's like the baseline of like just existing as a person who is not cis and straight and white. But if you add on top of it, the fact that abortion is so highly stigmatized and many people have like very pernicious racialized and gendered assumptions and classist assumptions about who accesses abortion care it often just puts the procedure out of reach for people and or if people do access abortion care it's a big contributing factor to like why people don't want to talk about it in a very similar vein, I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a bit more on how abortion restrictions have specifically impacted the queer and trans community. And I'm also thinking a little bit about the rhetoric, and particularly in recent years and, and months, um, and the ways in which a lot of political conversations, at least that I've seen around um, abortion access, have included a lot of like anti-trans and anti-queer violence and just the way that, that things are framed. Um, so I was wondering if one or both of you could speak more on that. I think that you, Cindy, you brought up something that like we talk about a lot and we work on a lot. Um, 
in the past like couple of years that I've been working in the abortion rights and justice space, I've seen a lot more um, conversation about how abortion is basic healthcare that people of all genders access, and it's basic healthcare that impacts everyone, no matter if you're the person that's accessing it or not. There's still a lot of work to do to make sure that it's not just that people need to say people who access abortion care instead of women who access abortion care or people who can get pregnant instead of pregnant women. I, I'm hoping to see a more real grounded political understanding that when everyone is able to access abortion care and not be afraid of being misgendered or experiencing homophobic or transphobic language in the doctor's office, like that's, that is like a good in itself. It's not so much about like switching the language because it's like the politically correct thing to do, but it's actually important to like switch the language and also like change the experience that queer and trans people have when accessing care, because that is just like a more like right and just world to live in. Ideally, if you have an abortion clinic that is providing gender affirming care and like isn't using super like gendered or like homophobic language and understands that abortion is something that everyone can access, then like ideally you probably also live in a community that like centers those values as well. And that's just like good. And that just should be the case. So I think it's twofold. Like it is important to be saying that like all people need to access abortion care. All people are impacted by the ability to access abortion care, but it's also meaningful that like it's a material change as well. As we're kind of coming to our last few questions here, um, I wanted to know what are your hopes for the future of reproductive justice in Minnesota and the United States as a whole as well? I want to see all of it to be safe and legal and free. I Maybe if Shayla is able to speak on this later, we have done a lot of visioning and talking within our justice about what our vision of reproductive justice looks like. And often among staff and board, it's some sort of vision of like, all of us are sitting in a park and some people have brought their kids and they're playing with the kids over there. And someone is like coming back from their appointment at the free clinic. And someone is coordinating like who's doing the childcare for tomorrow. And someone brought like a really beautiful spread of food and like everyone and like someone's coordinating like, oh yeah, I can take off work tomorrow because I can get you to your abortion appointment that you won't have to pay for. And we sort of like dream about it in this very like, one day we'll all be able to hang out and not worry because everyone's childcare, everyone's pregnancies, everyone's abortion, like it's all going to be free and easy and not scary because like we obviously work in the dispensation of services and resources, but also like we also work in the space of like, we want this to feel easy for you. There's so much that's going against that, that's making it feel difficult, but we want this to feel as easy as possible because it should. Yeah. It's interesting because when we start talking about what we dream up in the future, it's not just like, oh, we want folks to have access to abortion care. Yes, we do. And reproductive justice is so much more than that. Like Megumi said, when we were dreaming, I was thinking about people being able to 
go to their garden and, you know, exchange food for childcare or have their neighbor drop them off at an appointment. And it's not going to be such a burden that they're going to miss work. That's not going to make it so they are not able to pay their light bills or they're going to be short on rent. It's not going to be a burden. People's basic needs are going to be taken care of. There's going to be clean water, clean air, fresh food. So reproductive justice really is more than just accessing abortion care. It's what are the conditions that are needed to live like a safe and carefree life? We, we are dreamy people, <laughs> if you couldn't tell by our intros. <laughs> Before we properly wrap up the interview, um, I just wanted to create space to say if there's anything else that either of you would like to add, um, anything that we didn't ask about that you feel like is important to be included in the conversation. I would just say, say the word abortion. It's not a dirty word. I always encourage people to say it because there's so much stigma at the end of the day, even if we have all the money to pay for all the abortions, even if we have all the laws that we want, we still have to work to change the mindset of people who think that taking care of yourself, being compassionate to others and taking care of them is something that's bad, something that's horrible. No, it's it's not. It's, it's health care. Abortion is health care. And we need to be able to just say the word and, ex- and accept that people have a range of different feelings when it comes to their own abortions. And they're not any good abortions or bad abortions. They're just abortions. Um, that people have and we all love someone who's had an abortion. That's all for today's conversation. Stay tuned for episode two of our reproductive justice series when we sit down with folks from the Minnesota chapter of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, also known as NAPOF Minnesota, to talk about advocating for reproductive justice as AAPI individuals and communities. This episode is written, edited, and produced by your host, Yoko Vu, storyteller intern at Asia American Organizing Project, with help from special co-host Sienna Yozagi Milbar, content creator intern. For more information about AOP can be found. More information about AOP can be found at our website, aaopmn.org. Thank you for listening and see you next time.